Welcome to Friendly Words, the sermon podcast of Pratt Friends Church in Pratt, Kansas. The message you're about to hear was originally preached at Pratt Friends Church on Sunday, February 20th, 2022. It focuses on God as the source of our strength in all circumstances. The message to all who will listen is trusting in God for his strength is the way to overcome fear in life. Now, here is Pastor Mike Neifert. I'm eager for God's word today, are you? Let's hear what God has to say to us. God, thank you that you are in this place and that you desire to communicate with us and that you do so throughout the week as well when we read your word and when we listen and pray. And this is just an opportunity for us together to hear your word and to apply it to our hearts and our lives. And I pray, God, that you'll do everything that you desire to do. Help me to stay out of the way and help us all to hear together. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm guessing that some of you higher mileage folks may remember the Charles Atlas bodybuilding program ads that ran in comic books and other publications from the 1930s through 1980s-ish. Though they varied in detail, the scenario was fairly predictable in these ads. Some skinny guy was bullied by a stronger guy, usually on the beach, and the 98-pound weakling's girlfriend would mock him, saying, don't let him bother you, little boy. The guy would go nuts when he got home, kick his chair, throw something, and then order Atlas's free program booklet, sending the clipped coupon from his comic book to New York, New York. Much later, he and his girlfriend would be back at the beach, and the tough guy would show up again, and the former wimp would sock him in the face, and his girl would swoon, Oh, Joe, you are a real man. Anybody remember those ads? Yeah, okay. They're ridiculous, of course. They suggest that the only men who are actually men are those who have biceps that are massive and then go around punching people in the noses. They demean skinny guys, suggesting that they're hardly worth notice. As an adult, I can see through those gimmicks, but as a scrawny teenager, my eyes would rest on those spots longer than they probably should have. I would imagine my bullies getting what they deserved from me. I never ordered Atlas's free book. I never built my upper body strength. I never received the valuable trophy that would become the envy of all my friends, and I never became eye candy for the ladies. The only weightlifting that I ever did in high school was a workout or two done without any instruction during track season. I tried to bench press, lifted way less than everybody else in the room, and never wanted to go back. I felt so inferior. Occasionally, through my post-high school years, I would do a little bit of strength training for my upper body. I played around with free weights and a machine or two at the gym once or twice. I'm not one to join a gym very often, but I put a pull-up bar in the rafters in my garage once and did daily reps and got up to seven pull-ups, which I could not have done in high school, I'm telling you. And then I dislocated my shoulder, and that was done. Not doing that, mind you. I just flipped myself on my bike and hit the curb. And Anyway, about six or seven years ago, I ran across a group on Facebook that was promoting push-ups as a way to build muscle, and I thought, oh, I'll give that a try. So I joined the group and started dipping my body to the floor more and more times each day early on. 
20 push-ups in a day would nearly kill me, and I'd be sore the next day. But over time, I built up some strength, and I could do 100 and then 200, and by the middle of the year, I was able to do a ton of push-ups per day, 500, 700, 1,000. Once in 2016, I did 2016 push-ups in one day. Not recommended, just telling you. And I got my trophy. <laughs> okay, I'll put that back there. Anyway, <laughs> I got my trophy and now I am, as you can tell, the envy of all my friends. These really are my arms. Anyway, over the past three or four weeks, we've been talking about waiting as we've walked story by story through this really transitional period in Israel's history, from having the judges to having a king, from having a king that wouldn't follow God to having a king who would follow God, although we haven't gotten there yet. But this time of transition in the history of Israel. And we talked about Hannah and what was she waiting for from God? She wanted that fullness that would come with having a child, and God gave her a son in response to her desperate prayer. And Samuel, as a young boy waiting in the temple, he waited for guidance and a word from the Lord, and he spoke it even though it was a difficult thing to say because it was against his mentor, Eli, that God was speaking. And then, of course, we saw Saul, and Saul didn't wait for anything. He'd lost his place in the kingdom because he decided he knew better than God, and so he sacrificed the offerings that were only the priests to offer. And last time, we found Samuel waiting again for God's guidance, and this time his patience was rewarded with the gift of a new king, one who would follow God and who would renew the hopes of God's people. Well, today we're going to take a look at one incident in David's life, a time when he had to wait on God for something that we all need, strength. And I'm not talking about bodybuilding strength. We all need strength, don't we? Strength to face life's challenges, strength to face God's enemies, or our enemies in some cases, and strength to triumph over our fears, which is, I think, one of our greatest enemies, the thing that keeps us most often from doing what God wants us to do. God, give us strength. I've prayed that. You've probably prayed that. It has been the prayer of God's people since forever. We're going to see that as we move forward today. And so we're going to spend our entire morning focused on 1 Samuel chapter 17 with the few side trips into the New Testament for teaching. It's in 1 Samuel 17 that we see David facing the first real challenge to come his way after Samuel's anointing. David is not the king yet. Saul is still on the throne, but God is at work bringing David to the forefront of national consciousness. Before we talk about David's response to the situation, we've got to set the scene. He's not part of the unfolding drama as the story begins. He's mentioned in passing, but he's miles away tending sheep, just like he was when Samuel came looking for a king. It's what he's done for years. He's not much of a factor at the beginning of the story, so let's read the first 16 verses of chapter 17. We're going to see what's going on here. Starting at verse 1, Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soka in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damon between Soka and Azekah. 
Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield-bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to war. The first one was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Being terrified is becoming the norm for Saul and his men. They look at each other, at the big army or the big guy, and they cower. Like Piglet, they're constantly saying, oh, dear. Goliath is their heffalump. I suppose you and I have to admit, if we're honest, that this giant of a fellow would likely have intimidated us a bit. He's tall. His height is in the 8 to 11 foot range. You've never seen anyone this vertically oversized. He is battle-hardened and strong. The weight of his armor and the weapons would be a trial for any of us to lift, let alone wear. He's brash. He welcomes any and all takers. He's confident that he can hold his own against any of the 98-pound weaklings across the valley. If you face someone like this today, assuming you didn't have a gun handy, you would look for an exit. Oh, dear. I'm guessing you might have had a Goliath-like difficulty sometime in your life. Maybe you're facing it now. How did you react back then, or how are you going to respond in the moment? Fearfulness is our natural response to overwhelming outside pressures. It's our immediate gut-level reaction. We go to our scaredy-cat place when provoked even a little by circumstances beyond our control or beyond our comfort. This is the zone that Saul and Israel's army are in as this huge warrior shouts his defiance morning and evening for 40 straight days. Last month, you've had some things happen. Can you imagine 40 straight days of this guy coming out and saying, I'm going to tear you limb from limb? Not much fun. All right, scene set. Let's read some more. We're going to skip a few verses. And pick up at verse 26, all that we're missing in the story is David being sent by his dad to bring food to his brothers on the front line. And upon his arrival at Israel's camp, David hears 
Goliath's taunt for the first time. So with that bit of background behind us, let's read verses 25 to 37. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you lead those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now, what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by the hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. David is displeased with the words that he hears coming from the man from Gath's lips. He takes offense at the mockery being made of God and of God's people. How dare this uncircumcised fellow say such things? David looks around, sees that no one else is going to do anything about it, and begins asking some pretty bold questions. David's brother hears him spouting off and tries to shut him down. That's what good big brothers do. Well, okay, maybe not good big brothers, but that's what big brothers do. Just ask my little brothers. But David won't hear it. He keeps pondering out loud what should be done to this wicked man, and word gets to Saul that there's this kid who's willing to go and face the foe. The young man's brought to Saul's tent where the king interrogates him, puzzles over his brashness, warns of certain doom, and then with a shrug says, go and the Lord be with you. Kind of interesting, isn't it, that the king who's been rejected by God tells him to go in the power of the Lord. David, though, trusts implicitly in the Lord. He knows God is going to see him through. What's a giant when the great I am is the one who is on your side? Does any man's skill in battle matter at all against one who spoke all things into existence? God cannot be threatened. He cannot be defeated. David knows how faithful his God is. Knowing the Lord is with him, he's ready to go into battle. All right, interlude time. There's a bit more maneuvering which takes place before the battle is met. Here we're ready for verse 38 now. This is 1 Samuel 17, 38 to 44. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. 
I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, "'Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks?' And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. "'Come here,' he said, "'and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals.'" Saul does not think David can face Goliath as he is. He needs some armor and a decent weapon. Without props, he's going to get creamed. Probably going to get creamed anyway, in Saul's mind. David casts all this aside, though. He doesn't need any of what Saul is pushing on him. He needs the Lord and the strength that the Lord provides. He knows he doesn't stand a chance without the one who rescued him time and time again. His confidence is not in himself or his abilities, but his trust is in God. In your life, where is your trust? Are you relying on your abilities to get you through? I do that from time to time. How about you? Is it possible to do life without including God? You can do much without acknowledging him, can't you? You can do good without a relationship with him at all, but all this good will not save you, will not rescue you. Good deeds cannot save. It's a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's our only hope. Jesus warned all who would listen about this very thing. Hear him as he speaks. I'm reading Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I, that's Jesus, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Prophesying in Jesus' name sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Driving out demons? Yeah, do it. Performing miracles? But what was the key to doing God's will? It wasn't getting actions right. There are lots of decent enough things done in Jesus' name. The key was knowing Jesus, being in relationship with God through him, having the spirit of God within. My abilities do not impress God. Good deeds done in my power are of no use to him. My submission to his rule and my love for him and my willingness to be used as he desires, these are the things that matter. God, help us to trust in him with no thought to our own strength and our own abilities and our own armor and talents and swords and stuff. David, focused completely on God, faces the giant which had everybody else shaking in their armor. Let's see what happens when the enemy is engaged. We're ready for verses 45 to 53. See what God does when David moves forward into the fray. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. 
This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from its sheath. Then he killed him, cut off his head with a sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Shararim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. In verse 47, David speaks the most important truth. The battle is the Lord's. David believed those words with all of his heart. His life was in the Lord's hands as he charged toward Goliath. The behemoth before him could do no harm unless God allowed it. Knowing this to be true strikes a death blow to fear, doesn't it? No harm can come to us unless God allows it. I love the Psalms that David writes. In the 18th Psalm, we hear his confidence in God. Listen as I read a few of the verses from that, starting with verse 29. With your help, I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. And then verse 32, it is God who arms me with strength and keeps my way secure. Notice his focus is on God here. Verse 34, he trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. And finally, verses 39 and 40, you armed me. He's talking to God. You armed me with strength for battle. You humbled my adversaries before me. You made my enemies turn their backs in flight, and I destroyed my foes. Those are the words of one who fears less because he knows from whom his strength is derived. In Romans chapter 8, Paul asks, if God is for us, who can be against us? Let me ask you that. If God is for you, who can be against you? And then a few verses later, Paul puts to paper these words, starting at verse 38. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Does that cover everything? None of those things will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So why do we fear? Perhaps it's because we don't believe God is for us. Do we think our enemies, people who hate us and disagree with us and believe different things than we do, do we believe that they are more powerful than we are or more powerful than God? The battle is the Lord's. Take those words to heart. It's his strength, not ours, that wins the battle. 
Philippians 4.13 says it, doesn't it? I can do all this through him who gives me strength. That doesn't mean I can do anything I want. Paul is referring to being confident in God, whether he has a lot or whether he has hardly anything. He knows that God is going to help him. He'll have the strength for the task that's set before him. God will help you. Do you feel weak? Do you feel less than up to facing what's before you? Trust in God. The battle is his. Wait on his strength. One more passage and then we'll close. These are God's words to his people through Isaiah. They're spoken during a terrible time in Israel's history, a time when trust was hard because Israel was being defeated. But let them speak to you. Isaiah 40, 28 to 31. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Those who hope in the Lord, those who wait on him, they're the ones who are given strength. So wait on him. Wait on him for his strength. The strength that you need to face whatever giant is coming up against you, I offer you now just a few moments to respond to God. In the stillness of this time, let God speak to you. Wait on him for his strength, the strength that you need for today and tomorrow and the next day and whatever's coming. Wait and be at peace. I wait for the Lord, my hoping waits. I wait for the Lord, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord, more than watchmen wait for the morning light. I wait for the Lord, I wait, I wait. I wait for the Lord, my hoping waits. I wait for 
I hope I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning I wait for the Lord I is unfailing love put your hope in the Lord for with the Lord is unfailing love I wait for the we thank you that you love us. We thank you that when we wait on you, you give us everything that we need. You give us fullness and guidance and you give us renewal and strength. God, help us to hope in you and to wait on you. May you express your unfailing love and your redeeming grace toward us throughout this week. We hope you have been encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. If you want to hear each week's message, be sure to subscribe to Friendly Words in your podcast app. May God bless you as you follow Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit.